Today's episode is sponsored by Raw Signal Group. If you're a leader at a nonprofit, you're asked to do more with less all the time. It's a burnout gig made worse by the fact that most nonprofit leaders don't get any training on how to run their teams in the first place. If you want more predictability, more calm, more confidence as a leader, I personally really recommend Raw Signal Group's management training. It's led by friends of the pod, Melissa and Jonathan Nightingale, and they've helped leaders all over the world build thriving teams without burning themselves out. And they always set aside discounted seats for nonprofit organizations. So if you're a manager doing good in the world and you want a better toolkit for how you're showing up for your community, go to worldsbestmanagementtraining.com to find out more and reach out to them. But tushy. Ass. Badonkadonk. <laughs> Bottom. Buttocks. Rear. Tookus. <laughs> Yours are all better than mine. Um, derriere. <laughs> derriere. Moneymaker. Backside. Cake. <laughs> oh. I always am like a little confused what how much of a body that refers to, but I think it's inclusive. What about milkshake? Does that count? See, that's one I think it's maybe more. I mean, I don't know. The I kind of think is- it's more than. I was just listening like to that song. the milkshake that brings all the boys yeah. to the yard. I was like, like is, is it the breasts? Is, is it, it the butt? Is it everything? Everything. It is. It, yeah. It's the vibe of my body. Um, is the butt a private part? It's a really good question. Yeah. It is and it isn't, which I think is part of its um, appeal. Right. Cause in, and for our purposes, we're talking about the cheeks, not the whole. And that in particular is very liminal. I'm Ann Helen Peterson, and this is the Culture Study Podcast. And, you know, sometimes we have people who come to the Culture Study newsletter, do a QA. and a It's amazing. But I still want to talk to them more because there are lots of different things that I want to ask that didn't fit into, you know, a written response. And then also we get a lot of reader questions. So this is going to be a podcast companion to our previous deep dive on Butts, a Backstory. If you haven't read the newsletter, I highly recommend it, but you can also listen to this episode all on its own. So the author of Butts, A Backstory is Heather Radke. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor. So why Butts? Like, how did you first think, like, this is a book? Well, I, it sort of started as an essay that I was working on. I was doing an MFA at Columbia in nonfiction writing, and I was... I was working on an essay that was kind of about body shame, but I was really interested in what I call mundane shame. Mm. So like just feeling bad about your body the way we all do every day. Nothing like nothing like a big eating disorder or like horrific bullying, just this kind of like low level feeling of like, I don't feel good about myself that I think so many people live with all the time. And for me, one of those things was always about my butt because I had a big, I had have, you know, always will have probably a big butt. I'm a white woman. I grew up in mid Michigan. Um, I was like a teenager in the nineties and that was like a time and place and racial category that meant that um, having a big butt was kind of considered gross or a problem, Mm. something I needed to contend with, not something to be celebrated. Um, so I was writing an essay about that, about just like some things that had happened in high school and the way my mom felt about her butt. 
And I got interested in where that shame comes from. And I think there were some kind of obvious answers or sort of suggestions of obvious answers about race and gender presentation. Um, But when I really started to research them, I just realized how vast this topic was and how there was no way I was going to be able to answer it meaningfully in an essay. So I started to think about it as a book project and it really just kind of like spooled from there. I mean, I could have, I really do think there could be many, many volumes written about this and this was just like one possible treatment of it. Yeah. That's one of the things I really appreciated about the book is how it used this jumping off point of like, we're supposed to feel a certain sort of way about these different parts of our bodies. And it really got me thinking about like that internal monologue that is so present that sometimes you don't, you forget that it comes from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Just like that critique, the constant disciplining of your body that goes on both in terms of like what you put into your body, how you treat your body, but also just like how you think about your body and how it has to be, especially I think for women, we're taught to be constantly trying to reform the body in some way. Like you have to have feelings about your body. And that's why body neutrality is is such a radical concept because just imagine not feeling any sort of, like feeling the same sort of way about your body as I feel about a light switch. Can you imagine? No, (laughs) I don't think it. I mean, I love it as an idea, but I do think it's also a a near impossibility because we're just sort sort of indoctrinated about our bodies from such an early age. Yeah. In the newsletter Q&A, you said that, quote, butts are biologically pretty straightforward, even though they are culturally very complicated. So I would love to hear a little bit about the cultural history of the butt. (laughs) What are the big moments in the butt timeline? Mm. Well, I mean, I really started my butt timeline in about 1800. Mm -hmm. But obviously, there's like much history before that. And I think kind of the big first moment was when Sarah Bartman was brought up from South Africa by two men. I mean, then one of the many things about her story we don't totally know is if she she was brought up on her own free will or if she was enslaved. And she was so she was a woman with a large butt from the Khoi tribe in South Africa. And she was brought to London where she was displayed in Piccadilly, where a lot of other kind of colonial... Um, objects and people were displayed also to show off what was going on as the empire expanded and people paid to come and look at her Mm -hmm. and touch her and poke her and I mean it's a horrible story but it's a story that actually like that is not even the end of how horrible it is then she was she went to France um, where she died a very early death kind of a tragic death and then she was her body was dissected by a scientist named Georges Cuvier who was one of the most famous scientists in France and of that time of the early 19th century. And he used the autopsy report as evidence of what many scientists believe, but he was a big proponent of, which was that African people were not fully human Mm. uh, and that particularly African women were hypersexual. And there was like a whole bunch of reasons why this was a kind of important and convenient theory for white Europeans and white Americans at that time. Um, but it's sort of like the the codification of a stereotype that like we'll see for the you know we still see today it lives through the through two centuries and I think the other thing that's always important to say about Sarah Bartman is Cuvier displayed her parts of her body in his museum and they stayed on display into the 1970s and in fact there was a there was an exhibit in the 90s at the Musée d'Orsay that included her body parts and this kind of strange cast he had made of her body so. 
it's like the kind of history that feels so old or like we would never do that or something. But like, in fact, in both of our lifetimes, we could have seen that those body parts on display. Right. And contributed in so many pernicious and normalized ways to like the larger colonial project that like that's, you know, that still is part of the ideologies that are operating within a lot of these spaces and certainly within like museum spaces up until very recently. The other thing that I appreciated in the book is that you actually talk about like the butt's utility. Mm-hmm. So like part of your history is thinking about, okay, how did butts make it possible for us to stand? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And you're, I think you're a runner, right? So maybe this yeah. is like particularly of interest to you. There's, yeah. So I'm, you know, I work at Radiolab and I was interested in the science of the butt for a bunch of reasons. One of them was that a thing when I first started working on this project, people always would kind of bring up was this idea that like big butts had some kind of evolutionary purpose. Like there was a Mm. real commitment to this idea, particularly from men who would just kind of discuss it casually. And so I, I felt like it was important for me to understand the biological purpose of all the parts of the butt. And I mean, I think, it is a really straightforward, almost simple part of the body. It's like the muscle is there to make it so that when you run, you don't fall forward. But running is this like amazing human adaptation that was like most scientists now think was very critical to our development into like large brained people because basically running lets you hunt big animals which have a lot of calories and you really need all those calories if you're going to have a big brain and particularly if you're going to have a baby with a big brain so Mm. all the adaptations in our bodies for running which the, the butt is one but it's certainly not the only one they make it so that like you know not even like pre homo sapien like we're talking about like homo erectus they those creatures could like run long long distances and although you can't like out sprint an antelope you can out long distance run an antelope because an antelope can run really fast but only for short periods of time so what the way you like kind of in this idea at least the way you would kill an antelope is you just like run forever at this (laughs) slow pace and eventually that animal will basically like you know keel over and then you like beat it with a rock or something that's the right. idea and, you eat the animal. and then you eat the animal yeah you know you're I, I it's interesting that you point out that i <laughs> i keep going back to this physical part because i'm a runner and it's really true though the more i thought about it like one of my tweaky areas as a runner is in my right glute and i like that's a word for butt right is right. glute and, and only you only say it though when you're talking about like a sporty thing, right? <laughs> right. But when I go to my sports massage therapist, like he goes to town on my right glute. Like he is up in there in the butt and it never it never feels weird or sexual mm-hmm. or like an abject area or anything like that. I'm just like, "Oh, it is a place in my body that so many I, I hold tension there. So many other parts of like my my stride connect there. And thinking of it through that lens of this is what makes my body do what I want it to do mm-hmm. has made me think about it differently. Like and yeah. part of that is naming it glute, and part of it too is just being like, this is what allows me to run. Like I need to keep it healthy. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing part of the body. I mean, it's the biggest muscle in our bodies. I think it's the biggest like of that kind, I think your intestines are probably a bigger muscle, but, and then also the fat on our butts, which I found very profound when I talked to the anthropologists about this, like that, you know, 
women need a lot more fat than men or females need a lot more fat than males really if if you're going to be a person who has a baby there's a like you need to have a lot of fat f- to store estrogen but really it's because you go through so much so many calories when you're pregnant and then really it's breastfeeding cuz you yeah. just like pound through these calories while you're breastfeeding and so Basically, you have to store a lot more fat on your body. And that just that fact I found quite profound because we have more fat on our bodies than almost any other animal on the planet except for like whales. That's yeah. a lot. That's like a lot right. of fat. And no one's like, oh, that whale is so fat. They're like, no, that whale has <laughs> has like the correct amount of fat to like allow it to sustain life and like live in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's like it's like a biological necessity. It's not. Yeah. And that uh, one of the things I really liked finding out was this idea that fat doesn't show up on the fossil record, which is like a very obvious thing if you think about it. But what right. that means Fat, it doesn't show up. Just like, like by the way, like hair doesn't show up. Like penis size doesn't show up. Like flesh doesn't show up. So yeah. there's a lot of things we sort of, you have like some sense maybe that you know what like ancient man looked like. But like we don't. No. We have no idea. And no. it's important that we kind of remember that because a lot of our fantasies about like what a correct body looked like come from some really kind of not scientific idea about like the original human. Right. Breasts too, right? Like totally. there's no record. <laughs> the breasts are gone. And I think that that like whatever we have of these representations, it's extrapolated from our current understanding of like what a hunter and gatherer would look like, like what that right. body would look like. Right. And there's probably, you know, depending on the climate, depending on the diversity of life it's like probably all kinds of bodies looked all kinds of ways then just like they do now so i mean you know there's obviously all kinds of studies about like the way that there's been more fat over the last hundred years or something like there's all like i don't mean to say any of that's not real it's just that like i think we have to always kind of question our ideas about things like what is like the perfect body or the original body or like one of the things that would come up a lot when I was at parties and talking about this book was people would say things like women with big butts are more fertile but that's Mm. like this really messy evolutionary psychology thing that really took hold in the 90s and just got into every major magazine including like the Atlantic and you know I mean sure like Maxim and these kind of men's magazines but also into mainstream publications that were like because the studies are so funny. Like, the word butt really goes a long way, trust me. <laughs> and so, like, to put be able to write a headline about that, the science was never very good. And it's just not true. You're saying that, like, there were studies that were pretty bad that people saw and were like, oh, this would be a good headline. And so published the findings, even though maybe the science was not. Well, that's probably a little bit ungenerous. I think what was true was that evolutionary psychology became this really big thing in the 90s. And that's basically the idea that almost everything, including our desire, can be explained through like a sort of evolutionary lens. So that there's like a reason, a sort of biological imperative that we like certain things, that we eat certain things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a really popular way and kind of still is a really popular Mm -hmm. way of thinking about many parts of our lives. But that science, according to me and according to all the evolutionary biologists I talked to, is very flimsy because it I mean, for a bunch of reasons that are probably like a little too complicated to go into. But basically, it's like it ignores 
some of the most obvious things. Like they ask questions like, why do men like big butts? And they come up with answers like, well, a woman who is pregnant sways her butt out more. And when I sh- we show these pictures to college freshmen at the University of Texas, they say they're more attractive. I mean, you can, I mean, I'm being ungenerous. Like there's a probably mm-hmm. a kinder way to talk about that study, but you can see a bunch of problems with it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like it yeah. ignores the fact that like those are men who have been 20 years living in American culture or what any culture that's like yeah. suggests that some women are more beautiful than other women or it sort of ignores the obvious that's like not all men like big butts actually like as I can attest to you know what I mean like right like that right. there's just these kind of but that those studies are fun to read they explain mm. something about ourselves that feels a little taboo to investigate. And I also think there's another thing, which is like, it, it gives us an excuse. It like makes it so that you think if there's a scientific answer for something like why we like big butts, we don't actually have to think about all the cultural answers as hard. Yeah, that's so true. This is a great segue to all of our additional questions that we yes. got from culture study readers. So first, we're going to hear from E. I would love to hear Heather's favorite terminology for butts. How did we end up using peach and ass and moneymaker and cake and badonkadonk and bum for the same thing? And what about those words that mean other things? The food ones and shape references and words for the end of things are pretty clear, but what about ones like a bum is a butt, but also a freeloader, but also to borrow something an ass is also a donkey. The moon, as in mooning, is also the moon. Also, what is Heather and Anne's favorite song about butts? And did Heather discover any hidden gems among the many, many songs about butts while writing the book? <laughs> There's so much here. So, so let's start. <laughs> let's start with the like the nicknames component. Well, I'm like a big proponent of just saying butt because I yeah. feel like. The whole thing is like, there's no correct word. Like there's no, like, what is it? Like it's turtles all the way down. I don't even totally know what that means, but that feels like the right thing here to say. Butts all the way down. It is. Because there's no like, it's not like breasts where there's like a word that if you went to the doctor, you would say it and it would be the right Right. word. And it wouldn't be super embarrassing either. It would just sort of be like, this is the thing. Um, So I like to say but because I think it's like how I grew up. It's what I grew up saying. I think it's a little transgressive, but it feels like about, it's not dirty, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I looked in, so I, I was interested in this person's question about all the, about the particularly like bum and how that yeah. has these multiple, and actually like etymologically, they actually come from different places, which I think yeah. is true and makes sense. And I think that's also true with ass. Where does it come from for butt? It comes, okay, just, I like, got the proper OED for ass and it, it's like it comes from <laughs> it it's like weirdly I think if I understood it right arse comes first yeah. and yes. then it got like turned into ass but I couldn't quite figure out where arse comes from and ass for donkey is Latin I think got it do you know that when I was in junior high our mascot originally was the jackass <laughs> what they changed it to Burroughs in like the 90s or something. Probably good. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but Jackasses? The Jennifer Jackasses. Jennifer Junior High School Jackasses. It, that's also funny. It was a 
woman's name. Oh God! No, no, it was like it was like someone's last name, but oh, okay, okay. yes, but the Jennifer Junior High <laughs> the Jackass. So I was a cheerleader. So we had a, a picture of a burrow. Oh on the man! The back of my of my little jacket that I had. Um, yeah, no, I think that a lot of these are accidental, but we've come to think of them as like holistically, like the connotation is negative in some way because somehow the connotation of there's the one connotation of a butt which is negative and abject, and mm-hmm. then there's the one connotation of a butt which is that it is delicious. Yeah, and like juicy. I mean, I think there's the yeah. thing like why cake and peaches and stuff. It's like it's ripe and full. Yeah. I'm sort of all for it. I kind of like that there's so many euphemisms. I mean, I think the fact that there's so many euphemisms tells us something, but I also think it's sort of like humans are so creative. Like, what a, what a weird thing. We do. My mom was making fun of me the other day that I have so many nicknames from my dog. And I was like, it's great. Like, I love being able to call my dog. So her name's Bev, like beef, beefcake, beef stroganoff, yeah. um, beaver, like all of those things. And I kind of feel bad sometimes calling her beaver. I'm like, beaver, come here. Like that it's somehow like referring to a vagina. And I'm like, why Why is that gross? Like, why is it gross yeah. for my dog to be called beaver? There's nothing wrong with that. That's um, right. Take <laughs> it yes, back. <laughs> humans are creative. Which, so what's your favorite butt song? I'm trying to think of mine. Okay, so I mean, I don't actually have any like fun secret ones. I think <sighs> I... I, but I did. I was thinking about this too, and I was like, you know, the one I kind of wish I could have, I had written about, but it didn't quite fit into what I was doing was "Fat Bottom Girl" by Queen. Oh, I love it. It's it's a little out of time. Like the like the, most yes. of the stuff I was working on was in the '90s and the kind of like rise of the butt as part of hip hop culture and the white consumption of hip hop. But that's just like this like kind of early '80s ode to full-figured women as far as I can remember yeah and I remember too we had Queen's Greatest Hits that was on like just constant play in my house and I just always when it got to Fat Bottom Girls like it made me giggle a little bit like it seemed transgressive in that way and but you can tell that like Freddie Mercury and the rest of Queen that they don't think it's gross right like it's not exactly a joke Right. They're not like trying to like make fun of these girls. No, they think it's hot. And I think it's yeah. interesting when I I can't remember the year it came out, but it's early enough that it's kind of interesting because it's at a time when right. a lot of the women I interviewed who were adults at that time, they would have thought it was gross. Like it, I think most white women and most mainstream beauty ideals at that time were definitely like no butt. You could have like a strong butt maybe, but. Even that is like just coming into fashion. So, yeah. And I don't think it was Freddie Mercury. I think it's, who's the other guy in Queen? Oh, did he write it? It's, who's the other dude? What's his name? The other dude. (laughs) Brian May. Yes, Brian May. It's Brian May. Melody. (laughs) I think it's Brian May. All right. So our next question is from Sarah. In addition to all the great observations about femininity, fashion, and whiteness, I'm curious why butts are funny. Why is mooning a prank or sometimes bullying? Why do kids crack up about butts? No pun intended. Is it just about the taboo of it all? Are there other cultures where butts aren't funny? (laughs) Okay, this is something I was really interested in, actually, especially since the book. I actually wrote an op-ed that never quite went anywhere about 
why kids like butts so much. And also this, just to answer the previous question, I think mooning is just pretty straightforward. Like it looks like the moon. (laughs) If you're a white person and you show your butt, it looks like the moon. I think that's my guess on that one. I think butts are fun. I think kids find butts funny because it's kind of the dirtiest thing that's still allowed. Yeah. And I think they're dirt. I think they are transgressive and it's for like the most obvious reasons. It's like, where your poop comes out of it's where you fart like there's all these noises and sort of disgust that is there but it's also like at a certain age you're talking a lot about it you're like trying to figure out these like what's private and what's public and this is like a thing you're allowed to laugh about and like you know you'll get in a little bit of trouble but no one's like you know what I mean it's not that bad if you're six and you say but but if you said you know the f word or something like things would be bad, right? I think that's sort of my impression about it. And I did talk to a bunch of parents who have kids, like I have a kid, but she's too young for any of this to kind of quite come into the frame yet. But that's my impression from talking to parents about it. So I think that they just occupy this really interesting place of being off limits, but not totally off limits. It's like, you can show your butt, you just can't show your butt crack. And even on Instagram... (laughs) Actually, the butt occupies a really interesting place in the history of Instagram because it's kind of the dirtiest thing you can show on Instagram, but sometimes they'll ban it. Yeah. Like there's this woman who makes these like little Christmas ornaments of women's butts. And I just saw that she got somehow like her images of this like very like benign. It's not even a real butt. It's a representation of butt. She got like taken off of Instagram or something or not her whole thing, but like her images started to get censored. Yeah. And it's this thing that Instagram sometimes goes through some kind of anti-butt thing. But part of why Kim Kardashian got so popular was because she figured out, I mean, I don't know if it was conscious, but she was showing the thing that was dirtiest that you could mm-hmm. show on Instagram in the earliest days of Instagram. Right. And that's why kids like it, too. It's like the dirtiest. Thing. I, I have a quick story, which is that um, my best friend's kids, who I take care of a lot, they... One of them was down at uh, the beach and they were climbing with some friends on a driftwood fort and the fort collapsed and one of them got hit by some driftwood. He's totally fine, but had to go to the emergency room. And while I was waiting in the emergency room, he wasn't in pain. He was just like bored and mad. And he was like telling the story of what happened. And he was like, and then that asshole log fell on me. He just kept calling the piece of driftwood an asshole. And I was like, that's funny. And, and like my best friend, she had to be like laughing but not laughing to try to like, she's like, I don't want him to tell that story to the nurse per se. But I do think that like. <laughs> I'm sure the nurse would have loved it. <laughs> it so hard. Really spice up her day. <laughs> but that, that, you know, it's with all bad words to some extent. Um but there's something about butt that, like, you can get away with saying it. And, like, you could say it at recess. Whereas in exactly. the school environment, you can't say asshole, but you can say butt. Well, and that's – isn't that, like, the famous thing about, like, you can't say asshole on television, although you can say ass. Right. Or at least that right, used it's to the be. Whole, it's the yeah, whole – It's the whole part. Ass. That's really upsetting to people. Another kid's story is that we were just <laughs> – texting these friends like these little kids one's in the fourth grade we're texting him on his ipad about like oh do you know where we are because we were overseas my partner and i and he responds just on the fly up your butt <laughs> and it was so like all of us laughed like his parents laughed like, all of us. 
<laughs> like, you know, where did he learn that? I don't know. Like, just like when someone probably on the playground was like told that joke or like heard it from one of their parents or saw it on a TV show. But like, it's just funny. I don't know. I know. It is funny. I don't. Yeah. Do you feel like you have any other insights about like what about no. it is so funny? <laughs> no. Maybe there's something about the bigness of it, too, where it's like. Yeah. The bulbous nature of it kind of has some kind of clown. I don't know. I mean. Totally. It's just like, you know how there are parts of your body that are like noses are funny. Eyebrows, super funny. I think that butt is like in that category of these parts of your body that have developed for whatever reason that are weird. Like the shape of an ear. Can you like an ear is really funny. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you think all these. I'm like, are they funny? I mean, yeah, they're funny. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, bodies are funny. I don't know. That's the other thing. That's the other thing about like the charged nature of a body. Like I I really do think body neutrality is such a good idea and I'm all in in for that. But there is this other thing that I think is true, which is like bodies just aren't neutral. They're so strange and beautiful yeah. and funny and I mean They're not light switches. They yeah. are they're cool. Like, yeah, they're dynamic and weird. And like, I don't know, my daughter learned to pick her nose when she was sick. <laughs> I was just like, that's a thing. Like, you have a hole in your body you can stick your finger into. Like, right. And like, and it, there's like, you pick it and then sometimes it tastes good. Like, I what know. a marvel. <laughs> I know. It's just, I don't, I don't eat weird. my boogers, just to be clear. But what's it? Or do you? <laughs> I mean, boogers are also funny. Poop is funny. Like, yeah. there's so many things that are funny about bodies. Okay. So, Our next question about butt discourse comes from Liz. How did you learn to talk about butts as a kid and body parts generally? How do you think that impacted your relationship with your body today? Wow. This is a great question as like a continuation of this, you know, how we're thinking about kids right now. I think all the time about like my friend growing up whose mom called her vagina her cat. Whoa. I, like your cat so is showing confusing. or like don't show me your cat <laughs> like what an interesting relationship with, with your vagina calling oh, your cat. that's really intense also like potentially very confusing when a child encounters an actual cat <laughs> so i'm trying to think about my relationship with my but i think my mom was like you know she was one of those like mindful moms that isn't you know, she's she's liberal today and she was liberal then, but wasn't like super like you have you should get to know your body or explore your body or that sort of thing. She did call it a butt. I think we were allowed to call it butts. And she called it like vagina and penis and that sort of thing. What about you? I mean, I think we called it a butt. I mean, I should know. I've been thinking about it for five years. I mean, I had an older <laughs> brother and mm-hmm. I think that I think that one of the things I was thinking about about the playground is I feel like that's just like like up your butt is like a joke that's just been passed down from like one seven year like grown ups aren't involved in that joke it's like I, like a, it's like somebody's brother it's like yeah. why we all like the Smiths for a couple of years at some point in our lives it's like somebody's brother got or involved even, in our you know, lives the, you know what adults aren't involved in is the passing down of the song. Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, Robin yes, Lane, Nick. Exactly. Like that is still, it is still on the playground. It and is. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still. And the S, the S that you do three lines and then three lines and then you connect oh, yeah. to the things yeah. like that, that S, that all of those things, adults not involved. This is not our concern. Yeah. I mean, so I think the word, but, well, I don't know. I guess I just feel like my brother was definitely like 
making jokes about butts and that was part of our lives. But I mean, my yeah. mom had, I write about this in the book. I feel like <laughs> I sometimes like a year into publicity for this thing. I'm like still talking about your butt mom. <laughs> she, <laughs> she has a big butt and she, and her, you know, she had a very fraught relationship with her butt, even as she tried really hard for me to not have a fraught relationship with mine. Right. right. And I think a lot of, that part of it gets passed like for me. And then I, I interviewed so many women and non-binary people about this, about like how it's, I think that there's like a dressing room world where that kind of thing gets passed on, where it's like you're trying on pants and like, that's where you kind of start to see your mom not feeling good about the way the pants fit. And you start to have these experiences of like, there's something wrong with this body when in fact there's something wrong with the, world of pants if you really want to know yes. but so I don't know I think in my in my life like I think my feelings about my butt come certainly from my mom's feeling about hers but then also just the way that girls are with each other where somehow by the time you're in fourth and fifth grade you kind of start to realize that there's some people's bodies that are quote-unquote correct and then there are some people's whose aren't and that that's the kind of folk knowledge too that's coming from siblings and culture and parents and, you know, it feels unknowable. But I mean, that was part of what I wanted to figure out was like to, to know where some of those things were coming from. I wonder how much to really is involved, as you said, like a dressing room moment or now is I think kids actually go to dressing rooms less and less, but like just that feeling that you have to get a different type of pants these don't fit me anymore. Right. Or the feeling of growing out of your pants in some way, breaking pants, which I think everyone has had some sort of experience with that. Like it just gives you, when you break a pair of pants for whatever reason, it gives you a feeling that like somehow it's your body's fault instead of, like you said, the the poor construction of the pants. fault. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like you're just like living an active life in your pants. And your body's not doing anything wrong in that capacity. Yeah, totally. And the reason the pants don't fit, it's because pants are an industrial product and there's no possible way to make enough pairs of pants and kinds of pants that would fit all the human bodies. So, yeah, no, I think that that's a, that is a very common way that people experience like early shame about a body or they come to know that there's some bodies that are right and some that are wrong. I also think there's just that like very intense moment for so many women where when they're young girls and they kind of are like, it's like the, you have to wear a shirt and your brother doesn't moment. Yes. God. Like that there's this kind of like period of time that I always want to write more about. That's just sort of like where you're starting to realize that like this utter freedom of childhood is going to be taken away from you. There is something interesting that comes on the other side, but that for girls especially there's a kind of yeah an unfreedom you know you have to cover yourself up you have to you're gonna have to like be more careful and like this that you're gonna get your period this thing's gonna happen like you're you need to like be more aware of the body that is coming in this way that feels really I mean I think it could be exciting but for so many people I think it's quite sad and rules that don't make sense per se you know a lot of rules that your parents make or that society makes, like they, you can explain them in some capacity, but when you're like, oh, when you're six, you have to stop 
going around with your shirt off. Yeah. I remember my mom trying to explain this to me. And it just, there was nothing that she could say to me at that age that could make it make sense. Because at that age, like, I looked the exact same as my brother and as my best friends in the neighborhood who were boys. And, like, I wanted to do those things. And there's this thing that I think is really hard uh, that's true about that, which is, like, there's something about safety that also I think, Mm -hmm. like, a story I heard a lot was about you need to wear looser clothes. You need to be... Make sure your yeah. butt is covered as a girl beco- like develops. And part of the thing I think that parents don't want to say because it's so upsetting is like you might be in a kind of danger I don't even want to think about if you don't do this. And that's the fault of this world we live in. And it's a very yeah. sad thing. I mean, it's not even a true thing that if you cover up, you're in any less danger. But I think that that's the fantasy. The workers are not all right. You, as a worker, you're probably not all right. A lot of people are struggling, including maybe you, to make your career feel right right now. Whether you're trying to bounce back from layoffs or staring down a hard market or thinking about what's next. And I know, it can feel really isolating. And it doesn't help that so much of the workplace writing out there is self-aggrandizing broetry (laughs) or just straight up bad advice. I found that one of the best sources for truly no bullshit work advice is Melissa and Jonathan Nightingale's newsletter. They are the people that I go to when I want to read something about management that doesn't feel apropos to this episode, (laughs) like it was written out of someone's butt. They are so great. And their newsletter is free and biweekly and always feels spot on. They call it the world's best newsletter, but out of respect for my newsletter, you can find theirs at worldsecondbestnewsletter.com. Thank you so much to Raw Signal Group for sponsoring this episode. If you want to advertise on the Culture Study podcast, get in touch. We are totally DIYing this whole pod instead of going through an agency. So it's a perfect, non-intimidating way to dip your toes into marketing. I don't know, your Etsy shop, your proofreading business, your upcoming book or podcast, your art, your jewelry shop. I mean, there's so many things. You can even request a birthday shout out for your best friend who maybe is also a listener of the pod and it will be a total surprise. We won't accept advertising from any shady companies or MLMs or anything even remotely related to diet culture or turfism or Trumpism or bigotry, broadly defined. But if that's not you, drop us a line at culturestudypodcast at gmail.com. Our next question comes from Aaron, and it's more of a philosophical question. I have a very important question. There's a theory that says capitalists are boob guys and socialists are butt guys. Does this hold any weight? And where did this originate? I had not heard this theory. Had you heard this theory? I've never heard this before in my life. (laughs) But can, can you extrapolate where you think this theory is coming from? Okay, well, I I did a little research because I was like, I've never heard of this before in my life. And there was a tweet maybe three years ago that went sort of low-level viral that said this. So I think that's literally where it comes from. That's our theory is a tweet. Got it. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and then I guess, you know, it's really hard to say, but I guess like I've known some socialist Zizek bro men style. (laughs) Zizek bro men. In my life. I don't know. I mean, I guess like the best thing I could say is that 
breasts, like big breasts are sort of a mainstream, you know, for decades were part of like what it was to be attractive in a mainstream white way. And I guess like if I think about like Playboy and Wall Street and I mean, I, I guess I kind of can see it. And then I think that there can be a kind of fetishization of the, um, I don't know, the sort of periphery or in the world of like the Zizek bro. So maybe there's something about like the idea that like, you know, the pervasive stereotype that it's non-white women who have big butts or that there's something even like a little bit like, I don't know, like I'm such a good guy. I don't like the traditional shape or something like that right this is like Like, i'm really like out on a limb this is like my just (laughs) me just guessing i don't know what do you think no no no. and i think the boobs like what there are a number of like assumptions of what type of boobs what type of butts that we're talking about when we're saying like capitalist like boobs and and socialist like like yeah that's true maybe the capitalists like small boobs no well i think you're right i'm (laughs) either they like the ideal perky b cup like I don't know that you have for like two years if you're a B cup like that and then right. go yeah like that size or it's like the we like things that are bigger than are possible and possibly cause cancer like you know yeah. what I mean like we <laughs> we only like have the, like the, <laughs> the, 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 we only like the aesthetic we don't care about the consequences yeah which is implants like right and fake boobs and that that understanding and like. I think that also suggests that, like, there are so many reasons why women do things to their boobs, right? So many reasons. Right. Totally. Bigger, smaller, all sorts of things. Get rid of them altogether. And this is assuming, like, an understanding where, like, women, the women who gets a breast implant is doing it specifically for the male gaze. So, like, a capitalist is also within this framework, like, a traditional patriarchal status quo upholder. Right. And a yeah. socialist within this understanding is like a feminist. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's like there's so many assumptions being made, and I, including by me in this question. I can't really yeah. parse it all. But yeah, I was assuming in bo- like both the – it's like the Wall Street bro and the Zizek bro. Like they're all yeah. flawed. And both of those guys ultimately <laughs> suck. Yeah, I was just exactly. going to say. <laughs> there's no – there's no hero in this story is kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from Julia. In the era of breaking down stigmas, why aren't we talking more about down there issues and normalizing vaginal, penile, and butt-related problems? I know four people very well who have Crohn's disease or have had to have their colon removed. And I personally had to undergo pelvic floor physical therapy after a car accident caused major vaginal issues for me. When I had a colonoscopy, my GI doctor told me everyone has hemorrhoids. So why is this so kept behind closed doors? Why do we as a Western society view these natural things as so gross and feel uncomfortable to talk about them when we've worked so hard to normalize talking about other things that are natural, like mental health issues, sexual orientation, etc.? Oh, man, I could talk about this all day. Oh, I'd love to hear. What are you, what's your thought? Well, I mean, I so there's this theorist Julia Kristeva, whose work I absolutely loved in grad school, is like very heady. But she wrote this book called Powers of Horror that's all about like why things that are gross, things that are abject, like why we have to label them as gross and as other. Mm -hmm. And some of that work is involved in like 
okay, like if we look at old Jewish laws about like why you have to keep things separate and why you shouldn't have sex with women during their period. Like all of these things were meant to essentially keep us alive, Mm -hmm. right? To like not get sick. Mm. And then they've evolved since then to become things that like we have to label things as gross just to maintain social order in some capacity. So with that said, like that's why I think, you know, we still have this understanding of poop as abject, as a menstrual blood as abject, all these things. But then also, I th- and, and women too, like there's this whole thing of like mothers, like the, the feminine, the abject feminine right. as gross and, and like the desirous vagina as gross. Yeah. And again, that's there to, to maintain patriarchal order. I do think that we're getting, we're normalizing some of this stuff. You know, I wrote a newsletter a couple of years ago about my first colonoscopy mm. just because like it felt like something that I didn't know anything about. And the yeah. only people that could help me were actually a couple of my guy friends who also had family history who had to have them a little bit early. And if I had talked more openly with like my friend group, I would have found out that several of them had had colonoscopies. And it's oh. just like, why do we not talk about that? If, if we talk about pap smears to some extent, right. some people more than others. Why don't we talk more about colonoscopies? And I think as people age, they're much more confident in talking. Yeah, I think that makes, I mean, the Julia Christieva thing, that's interesting. I think, I mean, I think people are more open to it than they were even 10 years ago. I mean, one thing I saw when I was doing, I mean, again, I do work on the cheeks, not the whole, but I mean, it's obviously all of a piece and a lot, I think a lot of the taboo is about the whole and both yeah. about anal sex and about poop. I yeah. mean, in fashion magazines, they wouldn't even say the word but until like 1999. I mean, they would say derriere, which is so, I mean, it's like even in like Jet and Essence and I mean, I bet like if I had looked at Sassy magazine, they wouldn't have said derriere. But I feel like yeah. even magazines that I was surprised, like... I don't know, YM, like just all of them. They said derriere. Mm-hmm. That feels like such a sort of covering over. And so, like it's French, it's fancy. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's changed. And I think even the way people have like wanted to talk to me about butts on this like little press tour I've been doing, I feel like that's, it suggests an interest and an openness. But again, it's not, I'm not talking that much about poop. Um, yeah. I do think it's disgust and I think it's shame. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a way that like even talking about vaginas and I was thinking about like, yeah, like pelvic floor therapy. There's something even a little like sexy about that, even as it's also obviously not sexy. But I think that there's kind of a way that stuff around pooping, pooping too much, the possibility of having something be wrong with your colon. Like I think all of that is embarrassing in a really different way because it's sort of like this thing that you're supposed to control and that is like fundamental you can you learn to control so early you may not be in your control anymore and then it's like obviously there's like smell and but I think it's like just really important that we just I mean it's like anything it's like the more you talk about it the less stigma it has and I think colonoscopies is a really good one like I think people are talking about that more and more or it's also possible I'm just getting older and now I'm talking about it more and more (laughs) It's 100% that. (laughs) You know how, like, there's all these parts of pregnancy and postpartum that women still feel like no one told me about this stuff? Yeah. That, to me, is astonishing that we are in this far along 
that there are still like these parts of the postpartum experience yeah. that people our age who have like some sort of willingness to talk about quote unquote taboo subjects like that there is still an astonishment of like oh I didn't know that it did this to my vagina yeah. but I also think well, I mean one thing having just gone through not just but relatively recently gone through a pregnancy and birth and postpartum I mean there's also just a lot like I started to wonder yeah. about with some yeah. of that stuff like I'm of course some of it is shame and some of it is taboo and it's you know thousands of years of shame and taboo. I think that there's also a life cycle question, like that there's a a set of information maybe you don't need to have until you're actually pregnant and postpartum. And Mm, that there's, there's a way that like, having it might freak you out too much. (laughs) And then it's not that bad anyway, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like, I had a C section, it, you know, it hurts to cough. It's like, you know, you feel crazy when you poop the first time. But like, (laughs) <laughs> and then it's fine. Like a few weeks later, it's fine. And like maybe me knowing that and in, in d- intimate detail ahead of time wouldn't have helped. It just would have made me feel scared. I don't know. I guess that I even with the colonoscopy stuff, it's like it's good for us to just talk about it like it's a normal thing, like going to the gynecologist or whatever. But also like, mm-hmm. I guess maybe I'm just thinking out loud here. Maybe I'm making an argument for like not making it such a big deal yeah. And also not making not hiding it like that by doing it the middle way, you're also kind of that's what makes it feel normal when it's yeah. not like, like super sensational, like wait till you're 40. And then this, like, you know. and then it's a horror show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like have a baby and your body turns into a monster. Exactly. Uh, I think that, you know, the it's also part and parcel of this move towards like well, we're not going to use blue liquids to demonstrate right. like how tampons work anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? And I just remember growing up like seeing so many commercials that I'm sure kids have no exposure to anymore because they don't watch like broadcast television. Right. For hemorrhoid cream and hemorrhoid wipes. Oh yeah. And being like, I don't know what those are because no one ever says like a preparation age commercial would never say like what it was and if they just would say it like maybe we would be less freaked out when you get them which many people do over the course of their like most people yeah when i was when i was knocked out from my last colonoscopy i apparently had a long conversation about hemorrhoids with the like the people who were doing the procedure i have no memory of it but he told me afterwards well i'm sure he appreciated But it's true. I mean, hemorrhoids is a great example because, like, I don't think I really knew what a hemorrhoid was until I was pregnant. And then some, like, I was like, they were like, well, have you had a hemorrhoid? And I was like, can you just tell me what it is? But I actually think because I'm a reporter, I actually am way more willing to ask a question like that than most people. Like, I'll ask a stupid, stupid question to a doctor. And I I mean, it's not stupid because no, it's like, they're like, you know, nobody ever asks, but this is what it is and you're like maybe tell them like maybe just be like <laughs> fyi if no one ever told you what a hemorrhoid is here's a picture and some information what if, what if you could like go to the doctor when you like graduate from high school and they're just like none of these are a huge deal like these are just things that happen as you get older totally. like here's what a hemorrhoid is. If it gets really bad, this is what it will feel like. And this is when you should come to a doctor, right? Yes. So instead of doing all of our frantic Googling, where if you Google it, Google hemorrhoid, it just comes up with like all these horrible representations yes. that you just be like, oh, that's a hemorrhoid. Um, 
it would it would be really it would useful. Be really, I know, just some really simple patient education. <laughs> It'd probably help right. them too. I bet people come to the doctor all the time and they're like, oh my, this horrible thing is happening and it's such a big deal. And they're like, try preparation H, you know? Like, <laughs> it's, a real, <laughs> it's a real lifesaver. <laughs> this is our PSA to anyone listening that hemorrhoids are not a big deal. There are many creams and other things available. Also, a, a bath of Epsom salts works yeah. for a lot of people. Most For most people, it too will pass. That's right. <laughs> but... Um, also, we are here. If you ever want to like ask us more body questions, we'll I mean, I'm no that. expert, but I'll talk about it. We're not experts, but we'll talk to you about hemorrhoids. Oh. This has been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Heather. Where can people find you online or on the podcast app if they want to find more of you? Uh, yeah. Um, thanks so much for having me. It was really great. I'm I'm sort of like have a weird relationship with social media, but I'm on Instagram. I'm rad H Radke on Instagram and I work for Radio Lab, So I'm do- working on some stuff for them right now. And yeah, just in the interwebs at various places. Thank you again. This has been great. Thank you so much. If you're a paid subscriber, stay tuned for today's AAA segment. I'm answering a question about what to do when it feels like you have too many friends. I know, rough question. Thanks for listening to the Culture Study Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have so many great episodes in the works, like so many, and I promise you don't want to miss any of them. If you want to suggest a topic, ask a question about the culture that surrounds you, or submit a question for our subscriber-only advice time segment, head to culturestudypod.substack.com. That's also where you can support the show and get bonus content. It's five bucks a month or $50 a year, and you'll get ad-free episodes, an exclusive advice time segment, weekly discussion threads for each episode, and a link to a special Google forum so your questions go to the front of the line. If you're already a Culture Study newsletter subscriber, you also get a really good deal. If you don't know how to make that work, just let me know. I'll send you all of the details, but you might also already have it in your inbox. And remember that your subscriptions make this show sustainable. You know, we're not supported by any big company. Melody and I are splitting all of the profits 50-50. So right now, we have enough to keep the show going for a few more months. But your subscriptions and the small amount of money that we get from a few ads, that's what's keeping this show alive. If you want it to continue, become a paid subscriber. The Culture Study Podcast is produced by me, Anne Helen Peterson, and Melody Rowell. Our music is by Poddington Bear. You can find me on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson, Melody at Melodious47, and the show at Culture Study Pod. 